Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so we are going to continue to spend some time in Kings and Romans, and even next week, Kings again and Romans. But yeah. um, we are continuing with the mess that is a lot of the Northern Kingdom. And so I, I do want to take this moment, and I'll include a link in the show notes of... Um, as we encounter all these stories with Elisha this past week, like some of them feel super disjointed, but at the same time, there's definitely some parallels of how the Elijah story is told and sort of uh, even some of the downward descent and, and some of how the Elisha story is told and um, kind of a reversal of some of those stories. And we'll even see today, like Elijah and Elisha are kind of two very different kind of prophets. And um, not only that, but there's also this longer story arc of there was this promise that one day there'll be this boy named Josiah who's born in the Southern kingdom. And we're going to see that fulfilled after the end of Elisha's life. And so, um, yeah, there, there's sort of all these sort of things happening, um, that it's not just, Hey, these are ancient writers and they just collected a bunch of stories from Elisha. Like there's definitely some crafting, uh, going on and how the stories are telling. So, um, and that's, it's cool for us to look at even now and realize that like God uses all different kinds of people. And it's again, that reminder that we don't, we don't get to choose our role in his kingdom purposes for us. And so, uh, he used Elijah for one thing and Elisha for other things. And though they had the same job title and the same roles, they executed it very differently in some ways, in great ways. In other ways, we're not so sure. Yep. And we find out <coughs> the Moabites don't want to pay tribute to the North anymore. So uh, the King of the North even in, um, asked the King of the South of Jehoshaphat to, to come and fight against the Moabites. And we actually find out the King of Edom ends up helping them. And so they go to fight, but they run out of water because the Moab is the desert. And luckily, um, Elisha, the prophet's not too far away. And so, <clears throat> but up to this point, they haven't asked God about any of this. They haven't said, Hey God, should we go fight the Moabites? What should we do? There's none of that happening here. And so this is really the first time they've even asked for what God wants from them, uh, in the story. <clears throat> but, uh, Elisha ultimately tells them that, um, that there will be these pools of water that will show up and that happens, but the Moabites come out to see it. And, and when they see it from far away, they think it's these pools of blood. And they think Israel and Judah have destroyed each other in the night. And so Moab thinks, Oh, well now we can just attack and finish them off. And guess what? That's not what happens. And they get overtaken. Um, and so, yeah. And we should also note like Israel in these stories, like they're practicing this whole scorched earth kind of practice cutting down trees as they go and stuff like that. And all that was forbidden. They shouldn't have been doing that. And so even, even in their victories, it's like, yeah, but they're they're still not doing exactly what God told them to do. Yeah. I don't, I couldn't quite, quite make the connections here, but I do feel like we saw a lot of connections to previous stories, especially in Exodus or even in Joshua with a seven day March around uh, the place or even I don't know, this gospel representation between water and blood being their salvation, Israel on one side and the Moabites on the others. And so I can't quite make all the connections for you, but I hope that maybe entered your mind or you considered that as well as you studied and read about this. Yeah, there's definitely something there, but it's mm-hmm. a little hard to let go. Here's, to here's what, and the writer doesn't give us any, uh, any help in that. And so, uh, and the king of Moab is sort of this latch diff effort, latch ditch effort uh, burns his son, or maybe the king of Edom's son. It's not totally clear, but for some reason, this causes the Israelites to go home. And it's peculiar because up to this point, Elisha said, "You're gonna, you're gonna go, you're gonna have victory," but it doesn't exactly happen or finish uh, in the story. But they at least drive the Moabites back out. Um, 
And then we transition to mm-hmm. uh, uh, this chapter four where Elisha has um, multiple miracles back to back to back to back. Um, and he deals with people that are experiencing injustice or death or hunger. And so these are good causes. These are unique causes. Um, and not only that, but it feels like the, the, the storytelling around miracles changes, at least in this section, because when it came to Moses or it came to Joshua or it came to Elijah, like these miracles were grandiose. They were um, nationalistic in terms of their teaching and scope. Um, but here with Elisha, we kind of get these small stories, these one-on-ones or one on one with a small group kind of miraculous stories with people that are uh, in some levels on the margins or a little mm. bit outside. So yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so it's definitely distinct in how it's being told. Um, and so, and we don't hear a lot of his teaching. We don't hear a lot of him train other prophets. We just kind of see him do these things. He's like the the prophet that um, brings help and care, but doesn't say a whole lot in the process either. So we see the provision of God for people in famine here. I do think it's interesting to realize that God provided when she was as desperate as desperate could be. And so there were a lot of days that she probably felt like God wasn't providing. And then at the last minute, God shows up through Elisha. Yeah. And, and once again, we see Israel not doing the right thing. Like the, the term is, is sort of she's in debt um, almost with interest, and so mm-hmm. uh, which is outlawed in Torah. And so um, these bad things are happening. And so Elisha tells her to get a bunch of jars from all of her neighbors and using this, this small jar of oil that she has, start filling up all these jars. And not only that, but like even tells her to close the door. There's like even this non-grandidoseness to the story as we go. And, um, and there's definitely some future symbolism here and like this oil. Oil is certainly connected with anointing, which is often connected with kingship. And so from this one thing, all will become anointed. Like there's almost this picture of like through this one, Jesus all will become co-heirs and princes and princesses, but that's, that's Mm. packing a meta picture of that. Um, and and so, yeah. And, and this definitely parallels a little bit of the Elijah story, um, of, uh, this this woman who had nothing and and ends up providing it. But we even see how Elisha is very different. Like Elijah comes into that story. He's demanding, uh, from this woman, he wants to be fed first. He ends up benefiting from the story. Um, all this kind of thing. Elisha comes in and, and it's not, she comes desperate um, asking for help and he's willing to do it out of compassion and care. He provides for his woman. He doesn't take anything in return. Um, and, and there's definitely this contrast. And, and one commentator I saw says like it, it, it sets up, it starts setting up this contrast. Like is God a zealous God whose angel or I mean, whose anger flares with uh, against Israel's practice of idolatry and is unforgiving or is God filled with compassion overlooking sinfulness, hearing Israel's distress, the pain in the orphan and the widow. And the answer is yes, he is yes. both. And Elijah and Elisha, both show off the heart of God, but for different ways and different reasons. Yeah. And even we see illustrated God's heart for individuals as well as God's heart for whole people. Yeah. For, for a large community. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, Elisha ends up staying with this Shumanite woman who shows amazing hospitality, which whenever there's amazing hospitality in scripture, it's always a key piece. And Elisha wants to return the favor, prophesies about her having a son. And there's definitely parallels to the Abraham story. This childless couple uh, is blessed with a child in response to their hospitality. Uh, Her husband is old or my husband is old in both those stories at the season next year, you're going to have a son, which is in both stories. Um, So the promise is made while the woman's in the doorway. Like there's all these little parallels throughout 
the story. And so um, it's meant to be a bit of a callback. And we watch Elisha kind of functioning as God's agent in the story where Mm -hmm. God or the angels were the clear messengers in the first time. Elisha's now that messenger. But there's also um, a uniqueness in the Genesis story. It says what God has spoken. Like there's sort of that language of like, we've heard from God, let's do what God says. And here it's, it's, this is what Elijah has said. And so um, that might be setting up some of the, the, the struggle of Elisha as well. Yeah. So um, the son that he promises does come, but he ends up dying and Elisha gets called to help. But Elisha seems to work through this intermediary of his servant who, who always kind of speaks for him, Gehazi for a little while here. And so um, he doesn't deal with the people directly, even though they really want to deal with him. And eventually he sends Gehazi with a staff and that doesn't heal the boy. So like Elijah has done these crazy miracles already just based upon his word. And now we're actually seeing a little bit of a struggle being like, all right, I tried this. It didn't work. Like, and he eventually goes to, to the woman's house. And so then he lays on top of the boy and uh, some interpret this as like, he performs mouth to mouth and warms the body. Uh, It can be totally miracle. And I'm okay with that. Um, and then the kid sneezes seven times. And so somehow that means he's alive. And, um, even crazier Spurgeon has a whole sermon just on that verse about the kid sneezing seven times. Um, but, um, But Elisha, it seems like Elisha at least comes to term with a, maybe his limitations and B the personal aspect of what his role is as a prophet. When he had always had this sort of intermediary intermediary spokesperson with Gehazi, like he he gets challenged on that and then has to really go be in person, be amongst the people and perform the miracle. Yeah. And I, I do think it's worth noting that this woman is, is from the Northern tribes of Israel, probably from Issachar, which is the same tribe as Elisha, which is different than Elijah going out into Gentile territory and healing that woman's son. And so pay attention as we read about what is happening within Israel and what is happening outside of Israel. God is continually showing us that he is meaning to draw all people to himself more than just, you know, descendants of Abraham. And so we see that through different actions that they do. Yep. So Elisha goes to Gilgal, uh, which he's even been to before with Elijah, and um, cooks for the prophets, but there's a poisonous gourd that gets used. And Elisha has some flour, it becomes safe, and everybody who's already eaten gets it, it's healthy now. Um, and there's a man who brings these 20 loaves to feed people, but there's over a hundred people there. And Elisha tells him, tells the servant that, um, uh, he needs, he needs to feed him. And lo and behold, he feeds them all and there's extra to spare, which as new yeah, this should readers, make us think of Jesus yeah. feeding the 5,000 and even this idea of grafting in the Gentiles into salvation. So again, we've talked before about these parallels between Jesus and Elisha and even Joshua. And this is one of those really clear connections. And so probably when Jesus was feeding the 5,000, people were remembering back to this story of Elisha purifying the deadly stew. Yep. And so um, we get to the story of Naaman. And so this is a a great man as we're introduced to him. So when he walks in the room, everybody takes notice. He has that sort of gravitas to him. But um, at the same time, there's something else people notice. And that's going to be the problem of the story is that he has leprosy. And so um, we find out from this kidnapped girl. um, Trafficked really is what she was kidnapped and trafficked. Yeah, that... um, that she knows of a prophet back in Israel who can help him. And so they send word to the king first because that's how they think things are done. And this king, of course, is insecure and has a totally irrational reaction, thinking that they're going to set a trap for him and pick a fight. And so um, Naaman eventually just goes himself down to Elisha. And um, 
It's interesting because Elisha even sends out a messenger once again. Um, and Naaman gets all mad about that, but, um, he tells him to, to go take a bath in the Jordan. And it's interesting because Naaman shows up here and he brings this six units of wealth that's sort of described there. And he, I guess he thinks I'm going to buy my health. I'm going to buy from the God of Israel, some fixing. And Elijah or Elisha is like, no, your six isn't going to cut it. But seven times I need you to go bathe in the dirty, boring old Jordan. And, um, and so what, what Naaman's, six couldn't accomplish God's seven through his servant could. And, um, and so we see Naaman decide to go do that after his servants tell him he probably should. And so seven times he washes in the Jordan and gets clean. And, um, I think it's really interesting. We see so often God advocating for and providing for the oppressed. And in this circumstance, uh, he uses someone who is oppressed to intercede for someone who has a lot of power and who is an outsider. And again, it just shows us God's heart and who God is for all people. Um, this makes me think I actually got to teach this lesson to a group of Syrian refugees in Lebanon. I know that's a strange context, but, um, the Lebanon and, and the country of Israel are not on the best of terms on a regular basis. And it was really cool for us to talk about how God is the God of all people and how in that case, an, an Israeli girl brought about salvation and healing for a Syrian man when, uh, even in our modern day culture and context, uh, Syrians and Lebanese and Israelites see one another as oppressors rather than deliverers. So it was a neat context to teach that story in. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, up to this point, Jesus in like Luke four and places like that, where he reads the Isaiah scroll in in Galilee, and he kind of goes, "This is my mission, and this is going to be fulfilled in 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 my coming." Um, everybody asks him about that, and he actually brings up the story of all of Elijah's stories, which are a whole lot of condemnation of Israel. Um, he brings up the story of Elijah caring for this outsider Gentile woman and of all of Elisha's dealings with all the people in Israel, he brings up the story of him caring for Naaman, this, this outsider Mm -hmm. Gentile from, from the North. Yeah. And so at some point, like these are the stories where Jesus is like, look, like my, my task here, the fulfillment of what God has been doing in my life is actually, and as we saw in Romans this week, it's actually the grafting in the welcoming mercy inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of God. And everybody gets all mad at him in in Luke, but um, that that's, that's the message that these stories were telling back then that ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus. Yeah. So Naaman makes this profound statement that, that God and God alone are, is, is, is the true God. And, and yet like, there's still bits of me. I mean, Sarah and I went a little back and forth on this, but there's still bits of me that like, but then Naaman wants to like bring a jar of dirt because his paganism is still showing its head where it's like, well, your God must be the God of like this place. It's like, no, like that's, that's not true. But Elijah doesn't correct that. He doesn't tell him no, but he brings this dirt home with him. And then he's like, when I go and worship Ramon with my, with my boss, basically forgive me. And so like there, there's something that he's going to do that, that's related to the idolatry of Ramon that needs forgiveness. And so um, there, there's, there's sort of the struggle of like, okay, like where's name and totally at. And, and Elijah, Elisha's response to it all is not to like correct it, not to like dive fully deeper to, to fully deal with it. He sort of said, just says, go in peace, no clarification or correction. And, um, and, and I mean, walking with people through discipleship, like sometimes like we just want to like, 
wrap everything up and, and with like this clean deal and, 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 but I've watched enough people and walked with enough people. It's like, look, like we're not going to deal with all your idolatry. We're not going to deal with all of these problems. Like your confession is great. Let's keep moving forward. And, um, it's not this like instant 180 where everything is left behind. Like there's, there's sort of this naming and process Mm -hmm. that Elisha seems to be okay with. Um, which sometimes in sort of our modern, particularly evangelical circles, we're, we're not as comfortable with, but it seems to be happening here. Yeah. I mean, I think we see, and we get to look at the more righteous one, which is the foreigner and not the Israelite. So you compare Gehazi with Naaman. Okay. So one has always had access to and seen the work of God. Um, and instead he saw it on his own temporary wealth. But then you have this new guy who is new to the work of Yahweh and he confesses God is the only Lord and committed to follow him. So the judgment that was to come upon Naaman ended up falling on Gehazi, which is, um, which is going to be, uh, it's basically a prophetic work towards almost what we'll talk about in Romans, not in the exact same way, but similar towards Israel and then access to God being uh, opened up to the Gentiles. And we've also watched the people of Israel and the kings of Israel, at least the northern kingdom, kind of a little bit ignore the prophets. But here we see the outsider is the one who is listening. ultimately obeys what, what Elisha says and does it and is healed. And um, like it's like, Okay, like Naaman, that the the man, guy from Aram, like he's the one who becomes the obedient one, while Israel struggles with their obedience. Right. And so, and then you get this school of prophets that's getting a little too big for its britches and needs some space apparently, and so uh, asked to to go build houses out along the Jordan. And and I, Elisha's response is basically like, "You go, but I'm staying here. I'm not, I'm not going to partake in this." And so, and maybe it's a it's a little bit hard to read exactly the application of the story, but Elisha's amongst the people now and he's amongst the city and he's going to have influence on the King. If he were to move out to Jordan, like most of the major cities are not along the Jordan and, um, and there's not a whole lot out there. And so these prophets are actually kind of removing themselves from the people. Uh, and, and I think Elisha doesn't want to go along with it and and it becomes a a bit of a, a teaching lesson. Um, though ultimately, heading towards the Jordan just carries with it just the negative idea. Yeah. So uh, this might be a stretch, but I'm going to throw it out there just in case this gospel connection sort of to this. So we've talked about how the Jordan river oftentimes represents death or even just a separation of God and man and an ax, like we've read about a lot in the Bible can represent judgment. And so I kind of wonder, and this is a commentator I read if, if losing the borrowed ax in the Jordan actually represents the debt we have against God that cannot be repaid and the debt that separates us from God. But then you have Elisha who represents kind of a type of Christ coming in and speaking and throwing the stick in the water and the ax has head floating. And so the debt is no longer having to be paid toward the person who borrowed it. So I wonder if we can see, I don't know, maybe it's too much of a stretch, but, but some sort of gospel connection here and Elisha representing Christ and freeing people from the debt they would owe. Yeah. It it at least allegorically works if it's not explicitly prophetic. Um, yeah. And so we get Elisha, uh, continue with his sort of un Elijah ish nature. Um, Aram is about to attack the, the Northern kingdom, but Elisha warns the king and Aram gets all frustrated, uh, that people keep warning this king. And so they go to attack Elisha because they think he's doing it because he was, um, and they have him surrounded and Elisha tells the servant that's going to be okay. And they pray, which is great. Like we don't always get Elisha. We sometimes get Elisha speaking without this part of the story, but he prays to God. And then God sends these fiery chariots, which which seem to really have a job to encourage these guys. We don't get a sense that they did 
fought anything necessarily, but at least God's army is still there. Um, and they, the, the, all the men of the, of Aram are blinded. They lead him to the King of Samaria. The King of the North asks if they should kill him. But Elisha says no. And then they have a feast with them and they let him go. It feels so counterintuitive, but Elisha is enacting sort of a love of the enemy. Um, that's very different than Elijah. Elijah, even the King's men who show up to him, he just, calls down fire and kills them. Elisha here is like, look, our enemies, like send them home. Yeah. It's so different. Yeah. And I think for us, you know, we oftentimes fixate on the physical experiences in front of us rather than what is happening in the spiritual realm. And we don't talk a lot about what's happening in the spiritual realm, but is there, God is at work and what a gift that they were able to get a little bit of a glimpse of what was actually happening. Then we get the siege, which uh, Deuteronomy 28 Hundreds of years ago, uh, starting at verse 53, spoke about these exact scenarios where there would be a siege, where people would eat their own children. It's crazy. And so um, it's coming to pass. And although the previous chapter said Aram did did not attack, which was sort of the end of the previous section, uh, we do see at least a siege, though we don't necessarily see a a direct attack by the end of the story. And so um, I don't think the Bible's contradicting itself. I think it's just the the difference between attack and sieges. Um, But people are starving they're buying donkey heads they're buying bird poop like that's how uh starving and desperate they are and um and the women are we find out are eating their children enough that this king just feels like broken over the story tears his clothes but accuses elisha in the process and so um and the king goes to him but elisha ultimately says like we still have to trust in god like this doesn't look good but we still have to trust in god yeah i think jehoram the king is really desperate circumstances. Um, and so is the whole kingdom, but nobody do we see is seeking the Lord. Instead, the king is blaming the Lord and saying things like, I've been waiting for God to act, but yep. really has Jehoram been walking in obedience? No, he's been disobedient. He's been seeking his own pleasure, his own fame and his own work. And yet he gets upset when God doesn't act like he wants him to. And it kind of made me sit back and think about the times that maybe I feel like God isn't acting or God isn't showing up. And then I have to step back and ask too, like, am I being faithful to serve and obey God while I'm waiting for him to show up. Yeah. Jehoram's face is very faith. It's very circumstantial. Um, and as long as things are working out well, it seems like, okay, but when things aren't, he, he just loses it and, and doesn't seem to show it at all. Yeah. It sounds like most of us. Yep. Um, so Elisha promises some food. He says, mm-hmm. foods are going to come. Um, but the, the captain of, of the King's army ultimately says, yeah, even if the windows of the skies open up, I don't think it's going to happen. And Elisha tells him, no, it really will. But now you're not going to get to eat from it. And so, um, a few lepers from the kingdom decide mm-hmm. to, to make a go at it and see what, see if they can find some food outside the walls. Um, and they go to Aram camp and find out it's deserted and they tell everybody back in the kingdom and, uh, Jehoram or Joram, whichever the king name is, uh, is, um, uh, thinks it's a trap. Once again, insecurity of this king uh, and sends his captain out to go figure it out. But on the way, everybody has a stampede over them and he dies just as Elisha said, and the people eat. Yeah. It's interesting that this story is kind of framed really around the captain's unbelief. It starts out talking about this guy not believing and then ends with talking about his lack of belief and the consequences of that. And it just makes me want to ask God for the faith of Elisha, the faith to believe that God can provide, even if a window of the skies open up to trust God's provision in impossible circumstances. So, 
Uh, let's jump to Romans. Uh, and so Paul's still in this sort of back and forth between lamenting some of his Jewish brethren who haven't come to repentance and some of the struggle that we should have around what role does the law have, but at the same time also being like, yeah, but the law was still good. It was still from God and um, the, the, the inheritance we have is still from the Jews. So he's still walking through those dynamics and um, even points out people who live by the law, which is not under the law. Sometimes when Paul uses the phrase under the law, it's, it's very negative, but by the law is a little bit different. Um, and he says, like, they could find life in those commands. Like the commands are still there and the commands are still true of, of who God is. Um, but then he's like, but, but the righteousness that, that mm-hmm. we've been talking about, it's not this abstract thing. It's not as if it comes from outside of us, from above or below, like, but it actually is in our hearts because of Jesus. Like it's that near, like this righteousness is ours um, because of the work of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and then Paul uses the Roman phrase. If you could, there was a phrase around Rome that if you confess with your mouth that Caesar is Lord, you will be saved. And Paul takes that idea of allegiance that they would have absolutely understood. And uses it to understand and apply to Jesus so that when we proclaim with our mouths, when we have this proclamation, which Romans would have had to have uh, for Rome, and our, and our hearts, our will, our desire, our obedience, that, like if we believe those things are true, like it's that simple. That's where righteousness comes from. Not by the works, but by confession and, and actual will, desire, obedience um, in this process too. Yeah, and Paul really spends quite a bit of time emphasizing the importance of hearing the word of God. He he talks about how Israel has already heard, but this should compel you as Paul was compelled, and I'll continue to hit on this as we go through the rest of Romans, to share the gospel. We It is enough to be saved, to believe, to confess and be saved, but we also need to turn around and share that good news with others. And and we are not fully understanding the work, I don't think, if we are not also sharing it. Yeah. And, and Paul reminds them, like, this is for all. Like, there's no limits to this. And so uh, we are called to go and tell about this righteousness that comes by faith. And this isn't. He goes into these Old Testament quotes, and some. Well, the first ones around the Israelites returning from captivity, and they learned their lesson. Uh, but the, that whole section, he quotes Isaiah fifty-two and fifty-three back to Mac. That whole section also ends with the vindication of God's servant, who is Jesus, and the message to the nation. So it's speaking of the remnant and, and and returning from captivity, but ultimately God's plan for the nations. And Psalm nineteen, he quotes that to kind of drive home that like even creation has shown this message, and these Gentiles were able to perceive it. So like we we Jews who also care this message. Like how much more are we without mm. excuse that we not only have God's showcase in, in the world, but have been told the explicit mm-hmm. things of God. And, um, and then he wraps up with Deuteronomy 32, Isaiah 65, like Israel's disobedience in the story. But, but there were nations who, who weren't even looking for God and they found him and, and God still has these stiff necked people and what's he going to do with them? And that's almost Paul sort of like, are we going to make the same mistakes? Like, what do we do? What do we do with the Jews? Which is where he goes next. Yeah. Um, and, and he says like, well, look, but we know that there's always been a remnant. Like even going back to the Elijah story, like there's always been these true followers of who God is and what he's called us to. And, and I think Paul would, would say it's, it's the people who live by grace and not by works. Like, that's what he's been driving home this whole time. Like part of the followers of Abraham are always that, um, that, that we understand that there's a righteousness from God that gets revealed. And he ends up quoting Deuteronomy 29 and Psalm 69, um, reminding the people that like, look, this is the Israelite story to tell, but those that, that have rejected you, may God still deal with correctly. Yeah. The Psalm 69 part is really interesting. I just, I would think of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, people have read, Jews have read this imprecatory psalm from Psalm 69 
over believing it over others and it's kind of been turned around back at them, which is yeah. pretty fascinating. So then we start getting this picture, um, this beautiful word picture, I would argue, of Paul speaking about the Gentiles being grafted in. That God's in the business of redeeming broken things. It could take even the sins of Israel who have struggled to obey the Torah, struggled to uh, understand where righteousness really comes from, and, and use all that stumbling to turn into glory. And that is to use to bring the Gentiles into the family. And if this is true, how much more might there still be restoration available to, to these Jews, which is sort of his, his point there. But mm-hmm. Paul then pivots and actually addresses the Gentiles. He's, it seems like the crowd he was speaking to was definitely the Jews. He's like, to you Gentiles, let me say this, that, that this, this ministry to the Gentiles like, that, that Paul's doing like, has the hope that his Jewish brethren would see what God has done. Like, the mercy that God has shown to bring in the outsider who is not a part of the family and adopts them into the family and showing mercy and inclusion, may that bring about repentance for the Jews who have not understand that part of who God is. Um, and then he goes into this word picture with this dough and ultimately with these trees. And uh, I think the image that we should have, like there's two olive trees and maybe I'll include pictures of, of both if I can find them. Um, and there's, a well manicured olive tree. It's been pruned. It's been taken care of. Um, and that's supposed to represent, I think the history of Israel of God as the vine dresser who has taken care of this tree. And then there's a wild tree, which honestly would look remarkably different, would probably be unfruitful, um, all these things. And so God has tended to this tree, but as part of tending to this olive tree, God, in order for it to be fruitful, has had to prune this tree to cut off branches when they're not fruitful, all these kind of things. And so the non-remnant Israel are the pruned branches that have been cut off. And and God, through the work of Jesus and what what Jesus was accomplishing to, to the ends of the earth, takes these wild branches from this Gentile tree and ends up grafting them into the family of God. And and that's the picture. And, and honestly, like it causes that tree to be a little bit more messy and a little bit all over the place. But Paul uses this analogy to, to teach these Gentiles of going, look, like, but you need to know, like, you don't get to be arrogant in the face of your fellow Jews who are also as part of this tree and have also been a part of this history of what God has been doing and saying and leading towards all this whole time. And God has decided to graft into this this cultivated tree some of you wild branches. And, and because he loves the wild branches and, and, and he decides it's time to display the beauty of inclusion. And so don't think you're better off than your fellow Jews. In fact, they're cut off by unbelief. So be really careful that you don't have unbelief as well. Yeah, he speaks specifically here, I think, towards uh, pride struggles for the Jews, which is that they are entrusted with the law. And he reminds them, salvation is not assured by being a Jew or by your works, but by your faith. And then the source of pride for the Gentiles is that they've chosen to believe when the Jews have not chosen to believe. And and God, or Paul, is warning them, saying, listen, you were saved by faith in the same way the Jews are. But one of the points Paul makes here is about causing the, stirring Israel to jealousy. And it just makes think about for us as Christians, uh, we focus a lot on that verse in first Corinthians. It talks about how people should pity us, but I just want to say that others outside of the faith should envy us as well. Of course, there are times we suffer unjustly and unfairly, but Paul here is pointing out the envy uh, that others will have when they see the lives of those who are saved by faith will live. When we are set free from the law, when we are saved by grace, when we know that we don't have to earn our salvation, but it was a free gift, we will live the lives of freedom and peace and love that will compel and draw others. And so receive that gift and live in such a way 
way that that others will desire to know Christ because of what your life looks like. Yeah. Um, we move into uh, sort of this mystery conversation, and it, it is a tricky passage to understand, and commentators are certainly in debates around some of this text here. But um, I think Paul's use of mystery is referring to like what he's just talked about, this grafting in, God's work in terms of um, bringing in the wild branches to his already cultivated branch, and this mystery of inclusion and, and all this kind of stuff, but, which God's ways are not our ways. And so there's definitely a... Um, a uniqueness to, to the, and, and maybe proper use of the word mystery there. Um, but he also speaks of this partial hardening, mm-hmm. um, which is unique too. And, um, as if God will continue to add wild branches until this plant is as he wants it. And, and after that, in this way, all of Israel will be saved. And, um, it's important to remember Paul started his whole conversation around his Jewish brethren by saying like, look, I wish I would be uh, condemned or I would be, uh, um, be, be basically punished or cut off so that my other brothers are not. And so there's still this idea that there's some cutting off that is going to be more permanent. And um, there are some in Israel who are the remnant, as we just talked about, and they are the ones who follow the righteousness of God in Jesus and not by the law. And so um, the remnant of Jewish followers that Jesus is talking about, I, I think, or that Paul is talking about, I think there's there's Jews who follow Jesus now. There are some who are hardened, but they will ultimately come to follow Jesus. And that there's a part of the salvation of Israel that all that's going to play. And, mm-hmm. and what I think Paul's drive is here is that um, he does not want the Gentiles to think that God has moved on from the Israelites as if all the nations of the world will be blessed, but Israel, sorry, we've moved on from mm-hmm. you. Um, Paul saying, no, 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 that's not exactly true. Like God still has his remnant of Jewish Israelite faithful people that trust in Jesus. And, and one day when all the nations come to the throne of God, there will be Israelites there too. They're not cut off from this process either. Yeah, and I think this section ends just so beautifully. Paul has been in this lengthy discussion debating about the role of Jews and Gentiles in salvation and specifically Israel's role. Um, And then he stops just with reminding us of the person and the character of God, that God is incomprehensible. We can't know what he does in the way that we want to, because he is God and we are not. And he reminds us that from him and through him and to him are all things. And so there's a mystery about the role of Israel, but God knows. And those plans that God has are full of wisdom and riches and knowledge. So as we study and dive deep into some of these more theological, heady doctrinal issues, remember that all of this study should lead us to adoration of God in the same way that Paul was led to just speak out in adoration of God as he considered this. Yeah, and and Paul wraps up sort of the the whole conversation on Jews with with the statement that like, look, your disobedience, Gentiles, brought about mercy, and so may the same be true of his Jewish brethren. Like his his goal and his teaching and his sort of theological build up is so that 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 God would show mercy to his fellow Jews as well. Yeah, um, and then we move uh, to kind of a a pretty famous transition into practicality here um, to chapter 12 of Romans. And um, in light of this incredible mercy, Mm -hmm. in light of God's incredible inclusion and grace, this should change everything about us. Like we should present our whole selves to God and may it lead us 
to not be like the world, but to actually be like God in God's kingdom. May we focus on the things that God says are important, ultimately knowing really what he wants out of our lives. And it's important in this text to, to realize, I sometimes hear this text always applied very individualistically, and, and there's room for that. But at the same time, Paul doesn't say, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Like each of you do that. He uses the plural bodies in the singular sacrifice. Like this is something we do together as the church collectively. Like we, we present our bodies as a singular sacrifice as the church. Um, hence why he gets into the next few chapters that he does. Yeah. So we talked about how previously, you know, we just hit this doctrinal analysis sort of thing, and that should lead us to adoration. And then adoration really should lead us to action where we offer ourselves to God as worship. We're no longer vessels of wrath, but we are set apart for his glory. So in Romans, as we've been studying it and talking about how practical and applicable it, it is to us, you know, one through 11 of these chapters are really the why we need to be saved and how we are saved. And then chapter 12 and, and mostly on is the, what, what does it look like now that you have been saved and you are this new people? Yeah. And so, uh, this picture of full inclusion by the grace of God, it, it, it's bringing in everybody and, and we're one big body with a bunch of different roles that different people play. And it's not about Jew and Gentile. It's just, we, we all play different roles and it's to the benefit of others. No group is better than the other. And so we're, we're designed each of us to serve others in the world. And some are teachers, some are administrators, all these different things, but we should offer our body as an act of service to others around mm-hmm. us, like as an instrument of love, which is really where he goes next. And so, um, the, the pivot and, and Paul constantly, his, his pivot to practicality is to always go, all right, now live a life where it's not about you. Right. Like, that you are dead to yourself because of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So go live that way. Live for the good of others. Yeah. And, and the gifts that we have are just that. They are gifts from God. We can't claim or be prideful about them because they were given to us as a gift. And so we should be turning around and using them and sharing them with others. So live a life of love, of hospitality. We give ourselves as living sacrifices. And we do that in order to bless others, whether it's our fellow believer, even if it's people persecuting you, it doesn't matter. Like that, we, we live for the others. And so, um, and if you're reading through that, you get to this thing where he built burning coals on somebody. And so, uh, just to contextualize that Old Testament usage, burning coals often signified the nearness of God. And so if someone's suffering, if someone's hungry and stuff like that, and you care for them, you are reminding them that God is nearby or in their midst. Like you become sort of the God presence to them, that they are not forgotten and that God is here. And so, yeah, may we overcome evil with good. May that be the principle that we live out and practice. Yeah. Paul kind of breaks it down. It almost feels like a whole bunch of bullet points on how to live as people of God. And he focuses on, you know, godly wholly pursuing love for our Christian family and then what sacrificial sacrificial love for friends and strangers looks like and then how to treat our enemies. But this, he says there is a different way that you will interact with every single person you see because of what Christ has done in you. Yep. So uh, we had in the Proverbs and Psalms in Proverbs 29, there's a few, once again, kind of famous one-liners in this that um, where there's no prophetic vision or sometimes just vision, um, the people cast off restraint, like that, that they're lost, they, they get lost. And so, but blessed is he who keeps the law and, and the other, like to fear anyone will prove to be a snare. Like we, we don't fear man, but we trust in God. And so that is where, um, our, our allegiance and, and hope really lies. Yeah. I think what I saw in this is just the idea that wisdom is in the long game. Uh, foolishness is when we seek immediate pl- pleasure in yep. this context, whether extortion or prostitutes or things like that. But 
but wisdom is in the long game. It's delayed gratification, which for us, not always, but oftentimes is waiting for heaven. And then God gives us some delayed gratification gifts on earth as well. And in Psalm 120, we get uh, the beginning of the song of sense. I know we're not reading Psalms in order, but uh, these these collection of Psalms are often sung uh, related to pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And this writer, it's interesting that that's a starting point because it's just like this weird lament to start it all. And he just has sadness about those who have lied to him. He lives with very unpeaceful people and he's just frustrated about this. Yeah. I, you know, I know the Psalm is about others, but I felt like as I read through it and reflected on it, I really needed to lament my own, you know, lying and deceptive heart in myself before I could lament it in others. All right. What are we looking for next week? So I think next week in the old Testament, it's, it's tricky. This is a struggle for me. I'm going to be honest. I haven't quite been able to figure out what I want to figure out in these stories. But the comments from the prophets and the gods seem pretty few and far between in what we're going to read next week. So pay attention to where Elisha or even Yahweh himself are strategically mentioned. And why do you think that's rare in the context of what we're reading about? Pay attention to that. There's a lot of action without a whole lot of statements. Yeah. 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 And actions just from kings or the wicked without much like you're like, where is Elisha during this? Um, New Testament, Paul devotes the last few chapters of Romans to teaching us about the importance of our interactions with others, how we do interpersonal relationships. So try to break it down into the different contexts and people he's addressing, how to behave, and then stop and think like, where is this still relevant for us or even for you individually and personally. Yep. Uh, So in the Old Testament, uh, as you encounter some of these new characters like Hazel and Jehu and stuff like that, think back to Elijah and what God commissioned him to do before he died. And how does that relate to these characters Mm -hmm. and who's actually living it out and doing it? And um, it's interesting. And then uh, New Testament, uh, just to piggyback a bit of what Sarah kind of ended with there. um, As you think about like Paul's teaching towards unity and this crowd and stuff like that, like what does this look like? individually for you like how do you owe people nothing but love like what does that look like in your individual life and how do you care for your weaker brother and and sister in the faith and what's it look like to to work through those gray areas with other people and what's your context and so um yeah so we look forward to next week thanks y'all thank you 